Coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas, you're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 35 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. I'm Austin Statton, joined alongside Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. We have a packed episode in store for you that features a great interview with author Steve Almond and his book, Against Football. Quite fascinating content. I think everyone's going to like it. Guys, I hope you had a better week than Marco Rubio. How is everything going for you? Well, my week's been a bit of a struggle. It's baseball season for the high school teams that I cover, and I'm not a baseball person by any stretch of the imagination. I've suffered through many rain-delayed games that have been three, three and a half, four hours long. So it's um, it's a rough time of the year. But I'm becoming more well-rounded. You, you yourself uh, have been encouraging me to appreciate baseball. I actually saw a very interesting game earlier today uh, with a home run from a kid who'd been struggling. I kind of felt it got into the moment and had my first positive baseball experience, I think, ever that I can recall. So I guess uh, from your perspective, might be a good week for me. Glad to hear that you're finally starting to come around on baseball. Uh, we'll have a lot more to discuss as the baseball season approaches. But uh, Jeremy, how are you doing? My week's been good. Uh, of course, been tuned in as always to all the political happenings and uh, whatnot. So a little disappointed to see uh, Rubio bow out, but we all kind of saw it coming. Uh, finally getting a handle of the dog thing. So I think that's all getting better. He's finally transitioning into a dog from a puppy. So uh, not quite as bad. Um, of course, I'm glad we haven't discussed uh, the status of how this relates to my relationship, so that's great. Uh, always makes my week better. Uh, other than that, uh, just looking forward to an exciting podcast with you guys. Um, we're going to take my mind off some of the political things that have been happening. Wasn't he a puppy just like two weeks ago? I mean, how quickly is he becoming a dog? Not only that, but didn't you compare him to a young child a few weeks ago? I mean, how is that going? Oh, he's totally still a young child. Don't get me wrong. No, this whole dog thing, you know, I, I will say he's not. Okay, so I've, I've run the gamut of puppies before. He's definitely the least uh, bad of all of them. There have been some dogs that, I mean, they just, they rip couches, they chew up shoes. They don't know what, uh, what outside means. And so it's just, it's a total mess. In fact, I'd argue that they're worse than children in some instances. But um, no, he's actually been a really good, I don't know, he's, he's adjusting really well. Well, we're glad to hear about that from our mascot of the Weekly Brew podcast. But for me, I actually had a great weekend in Las Vegas. I was able to see uh, Calvin Harris perform on Friday night at Omnia and followed the Alesso concert at Excess on Saturday night. And by the time our audience is actually listening to this episode, I'll be on my way to Austria, Israel, and Germany. So quite an exciting week on deck. Even more exciting would probably be the news that we discovered last Tuesday, and that would be that We Desserts is now on Uber Eats. Kevin, tell us about it. I'm not as familiar with Uber or any of its products as you guys are. Uh, you guys routinely Uber to and from things. I have my own car. I don't drink, so I don't really have occasion for Uber very frequently. But as I understand it, this is a big deal. They're one of the few restaurants, bakeries, whatever, that you can now um, use the app, I guess, on your phone to order food. Uh, so if you're sitting at the office and you're thinking, like, God, it'd be nice to have something for my coworkers, uh, you know, you can order a cake, you can order macaroons, you can order any of the delicious things they have there uh, with Uber Eats. I believe it's an app 
happy just download. Uh, and if you are looking to, you know, I've been kind of thinking like, where do you take a date? Like people want to know you got a person you're interested in, you kind of caught their eye, you want to propose something, you know, you want to go to a place to go to ambience and, uh, you know, a place where you can sort of get to know each other with a friendly atmosphere. I've been to Wii lately. They've really done a nice job of that place. The, uh, the chairs, tables, the ambiance, the music, the uh, people behind the counter there, Penny and Jen, uh, it's all terrific. And I was just thinking, yeah, it's a great place to take a date. So if you have someone you're thinking about asking out, definitely take them to Wii because as we've discussed, Wii, O-U-I, in French means yes. And that's exactly the message you want to send when you're taking a date out is yes. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, listen to Kevin on your dating advice. I'm sure he's a relationship expert, but go ahead and check out we desserts and they're located again at 3411 kirby here in Houston. tell penny and jen that the guys of the weekly brew sent you by and you'll get 10 percent off of your total order also in addition to we desserts we want you to follow us on our social media platforms we want you to follow all of the content that we produce on facebook twitter and instagram we make it simple just search for weekly brewcast you can also visit us at weeklybrewcast.com and last but not least we want you to go to itunes we actually had an itunes review this week so Kevin, I, you know, you didn't mention this at the top of the show, but it seems that your week is going better as a result of that iTunes review. But before we go any further, as always, we have a packed show on deck, so it's time to grab a brew, sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Here at The Weekly Brew, I think all of us are addicted to social media in some form or another, and we also all appreciate sports. Kevin definitely enjoys basketball, and there's actually been uh, an interesting... I guess social media trend or uh, post that has gone viral in the past few weeks, essentially post posing a question, essentially posing the question of which of these three NBA players who all have some sort of inherent flaws would you choose to be, I guess, your uh, franchise player or significant player. Now, Kevin, uh, I don't want to spoil who these players are, but will you go ahead and tell the audience about uh, this online trend and a little bit about the players? Well, I'm a member of um, several uh, different fan groups on Facebook for the Rockets. So, uh, you know, this picture popped up in multiple feeds for me multiple times. It's basically a photograph of Allen Iverson, Dwayne Wade, and James Harden together. They appear to be drinking at a party or something, nothing too crazy. But the guys are all grouped together, and the person that originally posted it asked, at the end of the day, which one of these guys is going to be remembered as the best player, or as the greatest player of these three? And so there wasn't an inherent discussion in that thread about the guys being flawed, but as I sort of looked at it and thought about it, kind of looked at the stats, looked at the players, they are. They're three players that, that each have um, kind of an appreciable flaw. They're not necessarily like Michael Jordan, Hakeem Olajuwon, like all-time greats, you know, greatest ever play the game. They're guys that you know are kind of one tier below that. And as I started looking and comparing, uh, it's actually kind of interesting across the three of them. So I thought it's an interesting discussion, which of those guys is going to be remembered at the end of the day as the greatest player. And and it sort of hinges on the fact that um, Dwayne Wade is still playing, if you want to call it that, and then James Harden kind of halfway through his career, or a third of the way through his career relative to the other two guys, which you know we've seen almost all of their bodies of work. So if you kind of put it together, it makes for an interesting discussion. And uh, so without looking at numbers or stats, just kind of gut feeling, Austin and Jeremy, I mean, who do you think is going to be remembered as the best player of those three when all said and done? Man, that's a tough question. Um, you know, as a homer for the Rockets, I would like to say James Harden, but... He hasn't shown me that he can win in the postseason. He can't win titles yet. And I think he's shown this year that he's a little bit, I don't know, lazy to some extent. I I don't know if he's feeling these external pressures from Hollywood or this $200 billion endorsement that he got from Adidas. But 
I think I'm going to have to go with Dwayne Wade. And the reason why I say that is Dwayne Wade has won championships. And, you know, granted he had Shaq in the 05-06 season. He still averaged, what, like 25, 26 points a game. Uh, he had, you know, a remarkable, remarkable year in 2008-2009, averaging, you know, career-high 30 points a game. Uh, and, you know, he won a few, he won some titles with LeBron. I mean, granted, he wasn't the focal point of that Miami Heat team. You know, they had the three amazing basketball players. I think he still had a great career. I mean, he's he's been in the league since uh, 2003. He's won a few titles. He's a very versatile guard, and he's still young. I mean, he's not the player that he was, you know, five, six, seven years ago, but if I'm looking at those three players specifically, and I love Allen Iverson as a shooter. I mean, my gosh, that guy was electric to watch with the 76ers, but I've got to go with Dwayne Wade. I just, if, if I'm looking at those three and what they've done to their careers at this point, I would go with Dwayne Wade. Now, Harden does have some upside, but I'm just not sold on him yet. Well, I totally see your pick in Dwayne Wade. Uh, I think I might have to go with Allen Iverson as someone who's completely ignorant of basketball uh, to a fault. Uh, I, I don't, Obviously, I don't know a whole lot about the subject, but I can, from my memory, think about uh, the big stars back, uh, sort of the turn of the millennium, and Allen Iverson was just up there. I mean, his uh, his career uh, playoff scoring was uh, almost that of Michael Jordan. Um, of course, you know, uh, he had a, a line of shoes after him, so um, I can't argue with that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think when people look back, uh, the, the guy has a has a career. Um, that you really just can't argue with in terms of how good it was. The guy did have his have his flaws, but uh, yeah, I'm just going to go with Iverson here. I just, I'm going to say that most people in this discussion are going to, like you did, Austin, kind of cling to the rings idea. Like, who earned rings? That's a team award. That has a lot to do with the pieces that are around you. And I... <sighs> When you talk about this discussion, people are going to remember the guys that won championships as being the greatest ones. So, but if you exclude that, which I would prefer to, I'm just looking at individual careers. Which one's going to end up greatest? I think that it's 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 tough because Harden's still so young, and because the first few years he played off of the bench, um, you know, he wasn't an immediate starter, wasn't an immediate superstar. It kind of took a while to reach that point. So his averages are tilted a little bit towards um, toward the bottom end of the scale, rather than like what it's going to be over the next few years. He steadily improved every year. I think that James Harden's going to be the guy long term. I'll just uh, shout out some numbers that you hear. Effective field goal percentage, which takes into account that the three pointer is worth 1.5 times a two pointer. James Harden uh, weighs at the five, the heaviest there, 515 uh, effective field goal percentage versus Wade has a five. One and Allen Iverson is a 452. Uh, free throws. You talk about free throw shooting. All the guys are great free throw shooters, but James Harden is damn near 90% at 856. The other two guys, 766 for Dwayne Wade, 780 for Allen Iverson. Um, Iverson, probably the better defender in terms of steal numbers. Uh, none of those guys are really going to wow you defensively. And then Harden, of course, who knows if he wins a championship or not here in Houston or anywhere else he may end up going. Uh, but he is the most potent offensive threat that this league has seen in in quite some time. I mean, you're talking about the sort of things that Jordan was able to do relative to everyone else. Of course, Jordan was doing it with the hand check, and he was doing it mostly from inside the three-point line. Harden plays that Moray style of get to the rim, get to the free throw line, and shoot lots of threes. And he does that well enough. I mean, he's a volume three-point shooter. He's not, you know, lights out. He's not Ray Allen. But he does that effectively enough that I think you can exclude his first couple of years here, and you look at his scoring averages the last couple of years, 25, 27, 28, uh, 28 and a half, basically, only increasing every year. He is basically becoming greater every season. It has for the past three or four. And I think we're going to see that trend continue um, you know, for at least a while. He hasn't peaked yet. So I think it's, it's, I'm a homer. I get that. 
my pick is at the end of the day, if you exclude championships, because who knows what Harden's going to win, Harden is going to look like the best individual talent of those three guys. And that's saying something because Allen Iverson's a name. Like you said, Jeremy, he's got shoes, but Harden's going to have shoes as well. A $200 million Adidas contract uh, is going to work out to a nice line of signature shoes. And I think, you know, 25, 30 years down the road, if I'm telling my kids about basketball, uh, James Harden's going to be the biggest name of the three. And Kevin, I, I think you have a you know several good points. I mean, I think all three of those players are outstanding athletes, and I think that any sort of general manager or owner would want to you know construct a franchise of would want to construct a franchise around one of those three players, you know, at the peak of their career. And you had mentioned James Harden. He's still relatively young. I'm not sure that he's actually reached the peak of his career yet. I mean, he's got probably another two to three years. So if he continues to put in the work, I can definitely see him, uh, you know, surpassing Dwayne Wade in my eyes as the elite player out of that group of three. But that's really a fascinating conversation. And, And for me, I want to kind of take that to one of my favorite sports, which is baseball. And baseball season is just around the corner. Opening day is less than two weeks away. And I went with the flawed slash players that might have been hampered by injury in their career. So I'm going to list three baseball players. First one is Mark Pryor, who some of you guys might remember. Uh, he had a five-year career with the Cubs that was cut short That was cut short due to injuries. And we've also got Josh Hamilton, who I know that all of you are familiar with. He's battled substance abuse, you know, ever since he was drafted at the top of the uh, first round several years ago by the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, it, but, you know, substance abuse has kind of hindered uh, the potential peak of his career. And the last name that I or the last name that I'm going to focus on is a local product, J.R. Richard. Uh, he was lights out his first five years with the Houston Astros. But during his sixth season of playing professional baseball, he suffered a stroke. And his career was cut short due to injury. So if we're looking at those three players, they've all kind of had uh, topsy-turvy careers. They've all, you know, when they're in their prime, they put out great numbers. But whether it's injuries or substance abuse, their careers have been cut short or not live up to expectations. So Jeremy, Kevin, I'm curious if you're picking one of those players who do you go with and why? Josh Hamilton is the name that I recognize, of course. And I got to say, as a, as a philosophical thing, I always root for the guys with substance abuse issues because I think that the way that we punish people who imbibe substances for pleasure in this country is draconic, and I think it's regressive and backwards. And so I always, even like before Johnny Menzel, um, before we really heard the full story about his girlfriend and the sort of reprehensible things he's allegedly doing to her, um, that was a guy I rooted for. I want to see someone be able to flaunt the rules of society and still perform at a high level um, that was a bad pick by me. That was another prediction of mine that went terribly, terribly south uh, was Johnny Menzel in his career. So Josh Hamilton, I mean, he, he's, he, again, uh, one of the uh, most electric talents in baseball, and I know that because I know his name and I don't watch baseball at all. So I, I also want him to be more fondly remembered than he is right now, of course. So, I mean, just picking from those three there, Hamilton is, uh, uh, you know, we're talking about guys that were flawed, uh, careers cut short. His was a bright star, burning very bright until, uh, you know, he kind of flamed out with the uh, drug issues. Josh Hamilton has been absolutely fun to watch during that peak of his career. I believe it was like 2008, 2009 with the Rangers. But when he went to uh, the Angels after signing that great contract, he just completely faded, as you mentioned. So he had all of the talent in the world, but just kind of threw it away a little bit. And uh, Jeremy, I'm curious, out of those three names, who would you take? It's funny you're actually asking me a question about baseball. Uh, I don't get those very often, but I do appreciate the chance. Um, Mark Pryor, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going back to my, to my memory. I'm not a big baseball guy, but going back, I remember hearing a lot about Mark Pryor's 
pitching talent and how uh, good some of his uh, his pitching style was. And of course, you know, he he suffered a, a series of injuries that sort of cut his career short. But um, looking at uh, his pitching style, um, he he was you know he was always labeled this sort of can't miss prospect. Um, and so I, I I would hope you know he it, it, it seems some of the speculation around. Um, his his pitching style kind of led to his injuries and um, you know sort of how his career got cut short. I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm looking at, at uh, his stats here. I I think the guy uh, should be remembered at, at least in the sense that he um, was this sort of um, he was a, I mean, he was really good while he was playing. But uh, it's just I I feel for the guy because it it looks like he had a potential and just wasn't able to live up to it. Mark Parr, if you look at his stats, I mean, he was a phenomenal pitcher. He pitched just five seasons, but his his whip was 1.25, which is just insane. I know that that's going like way deep for you two guys. I, I know that you don't you know necessarily follow his whip, but I mean, looking at the peak of his career in 2002-2003, he had a 3.332 ERA, and then in 2003, he had a 2.43 ERA. I mean, the guy was absolutely electric. He won 18 games that, that year, but he just struggled, especially in 06. He went 1-6 for his... Uh, you know, his season had an ERA over seven. Uh, and, you know, the Cubs were kind of hindered because they had Kerry Wood on that team, who was also, you know, kind of injury prone. I mean, he had that one hit, uh, he had that one hit shutout where, where he threw 20 strikeouts against the Astros, uh, you know, several uh, years ago. But it, it's just kind of disappointing to see uh, athletes like that kind of flame out due to injuries. And that's one of the things that we see a lot with baseball nowadays is, you know, pitchers going through those, uh, you know, kind of injuries. And I think that's a little bit to do with overwork, throwing the curveballs at such a young age. We can speak personally. Personally, to my high school, we had a first-round draft pick in 2006 by the name of Kyle Drayback. Had all the talent in the world. Now he had some off-the-field issues a little bit, but he's had two Tommy John surgeries in his career. He's only, you know, made a few major league appearances. Hasn't quite lived up to the expectations. But if I'm going to pick one of these guys, I'm going to have to go with J.R. Richard. And you know. He was averaging more than 16 wins a season in his first five years. He was on track for a 20-win season uh, in 1980, but he suffered a stroke on the field. I mean, we've seen players get injured, but having a stroke on the field, that's just that's mind-blowing. I mean, that's, that's something that you don't see, and he was such a young pitcher, um, and his numbers were just absolutely electric and I believe one of the sad things is because of the stroke I believe at one point in the 80s or 90s and if any of our listeners want to correct us on this I believe he was actually homeless living under bridges in Houston and and it's just sad to see a guy who's at the top of his game like that you know have that fall from grace due to a stroke but um, he has the second lowest ERA in franchise history at 2.71 I mean the guy's ridiculous and it's, it's just sad to see you know, uh, something that he can't control impact his career. But I don't know. I, I definitely like these conversations. I definitely like the basketball perspective. And, and for me, baseball, I mean, I get fired up about baseball, just like Kevin does about NBA talk. But uh, Jeremy, I know your specialty is football and you have some names for us, right? I do. In fact, uh, the most important sport here we're going to be talking about is football, of course, in my opinion. Um, the, the three names, you know, the, uh, you could do this all day with football um, in particular, uh, there are three players that I think that while they're flawed, I think that they should be remembered when it comes to, you know, if you're looking circumspect at their career. Um, definitely, I think the first guy that comes to mind, even though he's still playing, is Sam Bradford. The other one, Arian Foster in the last, and uh, I think not least, uh, would definitely be Bo Jackson. Um, if I'm thinking about all three of those guys, um, definitely 
uh, what comes to mind is, um, you know, wasted opportunities, maybe missed opportunities, um, and just talent that's not being utilized or not be give, being given the chance to be utilized. If, if I'm thinking about one that really sticks out in my mind, um, I, I think uh, Sam Bradford, I, I, I really feel for this guy. Um, he came out of Oklahoma, really top QB prospect, and he's just been beset by injuries. I mean, he had an injury in 2011, 2013, and he had a, two other prior injuries at OU. And he's, he, uh, with, he's had problems with his receiving core on both the Rams and the Eagles. Uh, I, I, just, I really feel bad for the guy. I feel like he, uh, he's one of those football talents that um, if he were put in the right offense, he really could have shined. I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed to see where he's going right now, but I'm, I'm hoping that maybe he can turn a corner um, and, and make something of the rest of his career. But um, if I'm looking at, uh, at those three players, that's who I have to go with. You had mentioned Sam Bradford. He was phenomenal at Oklahoma. He had, you know, he won the Heisman Trophy. He had some injury concerns, but here's why I don't feel bad for the guy. He, you know, as of 2015, he had already made 65 million dollars as a quarterback in the NFL for being mediocre at best. This past year, he signed a two-year contract with the Philadelphia Eagles for 35 million dollars, and uh, you know, he's expected to make a base salary this year of seven million and a signing bonus of 11 million. I mean. It's hard to feel bad for a guy that has had a mediocre career that is still getting paid astronomical numbers. So I'm going to go back to the baseball side real quick, and 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 that's Bo Jackson for me. I mean, the guy was a phenom playing both baseball and football, and it was just a freak hip injury that absolutely – uh, you know, ruined his NFL career. And I just wonder what could have been had he, you know, continued to – play at a high level and have a long sustained career. I mean, he was an all-star at in, in both sports, both football and baseball. I mean, that's very impressive to do and just a freak hip injury ruined his career. And it's it's remarkable to think that just one instant your life changes. And I guess that's the same with everything else, but if I'm picking out of those three guys, I'm going to go with Bo Jackson. And then if I have to pick a second, it would be Arian Foster. You know, he's been injury prone as well, but I can't feel bad for Sam Bradford when he's making that much money. Yeah, and if we're talking about who's going to have the greatest uh, career at the end of the day, or looking back and say the greatest, obviously you give Bo Jackson credit for playing two sports, being a household name, a guy that you know kind of turns heads when you when you mention him. Everybody's got something to say about Bo Jackson, but just purely based on NFL, who's going to leave the most lasting legacy? I think that Arian Foster is one of the best running backs and, and injury prone, perhaps, but really, um, you know, only two seasons I'm looking at here. Uh, plus his 2009 season. So three seasons where he played less than 13 games, uh, extremely productive and a guy you could count on a guy who was a workhorse and who actually could, uh, you know, catch the ball as well as he could run the ball. So a dual threat kind of guy. And he's, um, you know, he was the linchpin for this team for quite some time while he struggled to find a quarterback. Hopefully with Osweiler, that is now uh, taken care of. But I think Arian Foster is probably the strongest candidate um, of all those. Sam Bradford, I'm not sure deserves to be in the conversation even. I mean, yeah, flawed. Certainly he's way more flawed than he is, uh, anything else but Arian Foster uh, despite some of the bad tastes he's left in Houstonians mouths um, he is definitely of those three the strongest candidate the one that you look back and remember okay he had the best NFL career Jeremy I, I really like that discussion I mean I thought that was great uh, you know I, I love talking about you know hypothetical situations uh, and especially when it relates to sports so uh, Jeremy definitely loved the the players that you brought forth when it came to football and uh, Kevin thanks for finding this uh, conversation and you know kind of plugging this into the podcast this week I mean uh, you know it started with basketball but 
what we're able to touch on, you know, the three sports that we care about the most. And uh, I guess I'm just curious from our listeners' perspective, if you're looking at, you know, any of the players that we discussed and you're trying to say, okay, which one had the best career or which one would you take if you're a GM building a franchise? Which one would you, like kind of knowing the flaws that they have, build a franchise around? And so if you have any feedback on that, you know, go ahead and uh, hit us up on weeklybrewcast.com or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. You can, again, find us at Weekly Brewcast. But fascinating discussion, guys. And how about bringing up Kyle Drabeck, a throwback to our high school days there. Do you know, Texas high school baseball, he holds the record for most wrecked Hummer H2s in a season and over his career. <laughs> that is a fact. So shout out to Kyle. Hope you're listening, buddy. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that we have addressed brain injuries in football on several occasions. On this week's episode of The Weekly Brew, we're happy to welcome Steve Allman, who spent seven years as a newspaper reporter in Texas and Florida and authored the book Against Football. Steve, thanks for taking the time to join us this week. And you have a background in sports and journalism and have written a multitude of books, including New York Times bestseller Candy Freak. What was it that led you to write Against Football? Well, I think probably like you guys and probably most of your listeners, I'm a huge fan of the game. It's like a, it has been for 40 years, this like thing I think about and feel a lot about. And over the past, I think like the past decade and especially the last five years, in addition to just loving it as a form of entertainment, I kept feeling these twinges of um, doubt about what I was up to, you know, kind of which are, I think the feeling you have when you, start to shift from just enjoying something as entertainment to recognizing that it's also a moral undertaking and that there are aspects of the game that probably like as a normal person, a citizen, a parent, whatever, you you wouldn't be okay with. And those just those twinges just kept getting more and more like painful. Like I was more and more aware of feeling lousy about myself even as I was loving watching the games. I think the thing that caused me to start doing the research that led to the book was, I mean, this is sad to say, but just seeing my mom suffer a, a, a delirium, you know, having her have cognitive failure. And mm-hmm. I just had never seen that up close. And, you know, a few days after my third child was born, I got a call from my brother and he said, you need to come out. Something's happened to mom. And I walked into this hospital room and my mom, who graduated from Yale Medical School and is a brilliant author and thinker and psychoanalyst, like this incredible intellect just was gone. You know, she didn't know where she was. She didn't know who I was. She didn't know what day of the week it was. I think until you see that up front and you really see it in a very concrete way with somebody you love, it's almost impossible to understand what all this talk about concussions and CTE and Junior Seau or Dave Durson or Mike Webster, any of these guys who clearly had, um, you know, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, it's just unclear what that really means in a basic human moral way. And once you do see it, at least for me, I felt like, hold on a second, I need to take a step back and try to figure out not just what football does for me as a, as a fan, which is a tremendous amount. I love it. It's an amazing, beautiful game but also what it does to me and what it does to the people who play it. I kind of share your sentiment a little bit there. Uh, You know, my dad has had uh, a few strokes in his life, and you can definitely see some of the um, 
he went through a stage when he had a strokes of being delusional for three weeks. And it was just, it was, he, he wasn't sure where he was. It was kind of a frightening situation and, and kind of turning back to football. You know, I watched league of denial uh, this past um, NFL season. And when I was watching the playoff game against the Steelers, it was just kind of, I don't know, kind of made me uneasy. So I see where you're coming with with that. But last Monday at a congressional roundtable discussion, uh, Jeff Miller, who is the NFL senior VP for health and safety, uh, spoke about Anna Key, who found, you know, CTE in the brains of what, 90 plus NFL players. And Miller said, quote, yes, sure, there is a link between football and CTE. I'm curious, what implications, if any, does this have for the league that has, you know, denied these claims for so many years? Well, here's the deal. You know, this is the painful thing about, um, about against football, the book, and about sort of, you know, what it's like to be a fan. The NFL uh, and the NCAA, for that matter, are part of this big thing called the sort of football industrial complex. And they're large corporations that earn, you know, $10 billion a year in the case of the NFL. So anything that they do is really predicated around making sure that they protect their profits. That's why they spent, you know, so many decades basically denying and obfuscating and trying to hold at bay the reality that football has become so dangerous that it's, you know, it's up to a third by their own estimates now, you know, up to a third of their players are going to suffer brain damage eventually. You know, their their job really as a corporation is to protect their profits. And they do that largely by taking advantage of the fact that we love the game so much that we're willing to overlook our moral qualms or we're willing to sort of live with them and be in that same emotional, psychological space that you were in when you were watching that Bengals Steelers game where you see Antonio Brown nearly get decapitated and you say something's wrong here I shouldn't be sponsoring this but ultimately the truth is nothing is going to change in the NFL or NCAA until individual fans start to change their patterns of consumption or turn away from the game because ultimately Roger Goodell and Jeff Miller and the rest of the people who work at the NFL head office don't really care if you're a guilt-stricken fan or an ambivalent fan or a tortured fan. They just care that you're a fan. The entire system is built by our allegiance, and it's painful to face because this sort of major rationalization that I used for most of my life as a football fan was, well, it's the players. They're the ones they choose to, to play the game. They know the risks they're taking. Life is dangerous. You know, I've cycled through all those excuses, and the reality is it's the fans who made football so hugely profitable and so, um, you know, such a huge business. And we're the only ones, ultimately, us individually, who are going to change the course of how the game is played and, you know, really bring about any meaningful reform. There's Until there is a, an economic incentive, the NFL will continue its incredibly lucrative pursuit of the game, knowing that there are millions of fans who feel just the same as you do. They're troubled by it, but they still tune in. And that's all the NFL cares about. I'm going to circle back to something you said, which I think is interesting. Uh, A lot of people these days are talking about what um, the game is doing to players. And I don't hear as many people talking about what the game is doing to us as fans. So we're sort of culpable 
you know, in, in the damage that's occurring, but it's also doing things to us as well. And if you'll bear with me, I'm going to quote your book. Uh, you said, our allegiance to football legitimizes and even fosters within us a tolerance for violence, greed, racism, and homophobia. And then you sort of question, what does it mean that the most popular and unifying form of entertainment in America features giant muscled men, mostly African-American, engaged in a sport that causes so many of them to suffer brain damage? And I think it's a fascinating question, something people don't think about enough. What, what does it do to us and what does it mean for us uh, that we, you know, are so in love with the sport of football? Well, the bigger question I was trying to ask with the with the book is, like, anytime people love something, whether it's bacon or football or you know a big a big SUV or anything that we take real pleasure in, um, it's very difficult to morally interrogate that thing. And I love bacon, even though my wife's a vegetarian. I'm trying to be a vegetarian. <laughs> At the bottom of my limbic system, I love bacon, and yet. I have absolutely zero desire to visit the slaughterhouse and see what happens to the animals, you know, whose muscle tissue I want, in fact, I want to consume very much almost at all times of the day. And so, you know, <laughs> football as a form of pleasure, I completely understand the first two or three chapters of the book are an effort to describe how ecstatic and beautiful the game is. But then there are all these other values that are attached to it that I started to see very clearly, for instance, when I started to have kids. And if I sat in front of a football game with my son, for instance, I was essentially saying to him, hey, you know, I'm rooting for the guys who are more powerful than the other guys. If somebody gets if, if one of my guys smashes the opposing quarterback to the ground, I cheer. That's a good thing. Um, and if, you know, one of my guys gets hurt, I'm concerned mostly because my team isn't going to win, not because I really care about whether that person is, is hurt or his family might suffer or he's feeling pain. So that's seen through the eyes of a child. My son is kind of looking at me going, that's not what you tell me on the playground. That's not what you tell me when I go outside and play. And like, likewise with my daughters, that what they see when they watch football is um, you know, that masculinity and being a man is defined by physical dominance and that being a woman is essentially being a sexual ornament who, who bounces on the sidelines for minimum wage usually. And that's not the vision of gender that I want to get across to them. And, and likewise, they see and they do notice because they're kids that almost all the players are people of color. And if they drilled down a little bit further and asked, why are these guys playing the game if they're so dangerous, Daddy? I would say, well, largely because they're from economically vulnerable neighborhoods. And this is the thing that is put forward to them rather than good schools and support for working families and economic opportunity. What's put forward to them is a path to destiny, to having a larger life, to making fame and fortune, is if they get really good at this violent, beautiful game. That's their ticket out. It's a lottery ticket because one in 10,000 are ever going to get it. But that's what we give to the underclass in this country. Um, you know, that's dark stuff to consider, but when when you're talking about a sport that is the biggest central narrative in the United States, to me anyway, that has deep meaning. It's not something dumb or superficial or brutal. It's saying very profound things about the way that our relationships in terms of gender and race and class and even violence and militarism you know, the reason that boxing became a less popular sport, it's still popular, but it used to be the number one American sport. The reason that it is no longer that central sport and that football is essentially five times more popular and, and profitable than, than any other sport is because 
we could see when boxing fans, individual fans sitting there, could see the violence and brutality. These guys were mostly naked, and they were clearly trying to beat each other senseless. The great trick in football is that the game is, and you guys know this as people who are much closer to the game and have covered it, it is unbelievably violent. Every play features guys who are huge, big, strong, fast, smashing into one another. There are hundreds and thousands of little invisible car crashes happening inside those helmets. But the catch is that we never see the blood. We never see the brains that are getting shaken up. And anytime somebody does get seriously injured, they are carted off the field and the show goes on. That is, in a way, teaching us to kind of abstract ourselves. It's a sanitized version of violence. It's very analogous to the the awareness intellectually that we have young men and women who are fighting overseas and they are killing and being killed and being disfigured physically and psychologically. That's something you can hear and intellectually process. That's different than actually being in a war zone and realizing how traumatized everybody in that particular war zone is by the violence and danger and chaos of it. It's very hard to... Um, make people feel things even if they understand them intellectually and you know part of what i'm trying to do in in against football is not to make people feel bad or say that football is stupid but to be in a state of struggle to understand both the pleasures of the game but really what it ends up costing us you had just mentioned, you know, those those hits and those injuries and how the casual fan, you know, might not be able to see it because it's it's a brain injury. But, you know, when watching the game of football, it's it's not just, you know, like that ESPN segment that they used to have called Jacked Up where you would just see those violent hits. It's it's not just those hits that are causing CTE. It's, you know, the practices, the subconcussive hits, uh, you know, just the routine hits that you have on a day-to-day basis while doing two-a-days during fall camp. But I'm curious, is the emphasis on concussions sort of a smokescreen for the NFL? And we always hear this rhetoric about making the game safer all the time. But what has actually been done to eliminate the risk of brain injuries? Well, look, you put your finger on it. The very word concussion, we have a concussion problem. It's about concussions, is an elaborate effort to uh, mask the much more fundamental problem. Football doesn't have a concussion problem. The the real danger... is not the big catastrophic hits, the neurologically detectable brain brain trauma events. Those happen and they're dangerous. The real risk, and this is just following the medical research, the real risk is the hundreds and thousands of sub-concussive events, that is the little car crashes that never even register as concussions, that football incurs. And the real problem that football has isn't really a concussion problem. It's not even a violence problem. At the bottom of it, you guys, is a physics and physiology problem. Mass times acceleration is always going to equal velocity, or mass times velocity, mass times acceleration is always going to equal force. That's getting my physics right. And, (laughs) you know, as the players get bigger and as they get faster, they become basically more effective as weapons, smashing into one another. And players have gotten bigger and faster and stronger in in a way that is unbelievable. I mean, you know, the standard linebacker 20 years ago was, you know, whatever, you know, smaller than a high school player on a college, on a a Texas high school player at a big program. These guys even starting in high school are upwards of 300 pounds, and they're fast, and they they work out and condition year-round. They become bigger and stronger and faster. That means they can hit one another harder, and that shakes around the brain. The physics 
part is clear. The physiology is that the brain is a soft organ that is, until we evolve in another billion years, always going to be encased in a hard shell of the skull. And when there are these massive collisions or even small collisions between big guys, the brain gets shaken around. There is no way to undo that. There's no magic helmet. There's no rule change. The only thing that they could do would be to make it two-hand touch or to make it flag football. Um, and ultimately, that would cut into their profits because, and this is where it really devolves to, to the fans. You know, we like to say that we love football just for the beauty, the grace, right, the heroism, the poise that a player shows. And those things, I do love football for all those reasons. But everybody knows deep down in their, you know, when they put away their little hidey holes, they know that the <laughs> biggest sound in a stadium other than cheers for an amazing last-second touchdown, occur when there's a big hit and right. you hear it and everybody goes, oh, and that's a powerful reaction. We are brought to football over other sports such as soccer or baseball because it has big impacts, because we know that there's a lot at risk and those guys are moving fast and smashing into one another. That's why they have those parabolic mics on the sidelines that pick up every bone-crunching decibel. And it's why the TV stations play those big impacts, like the Antonio Brown hit, right, where Burfecht hits him, over and over and over again. I mean, you see that hit probably 12 times. Well, if the TV stations, if fans were really so disgusted by those hits, they would turn away or they would turn off the TV or they would say, ugh, right. I don't want to watch this sport. But deep down, we get off on that violence and that kind of courage, basically, and also that kind of risk. And it's not that I'm making a moral judgment one way or another about that, but as fans, we should face that that's part of what we dig about the game. So as much as we might say, I hope football gets safer, if it, if it really became flag football, a lot of hardcore football fans would say, forget it. I mean, already you have people saying, well, they can't even touch the quarterback anymore. It's a wussies game, you know. And and this is with very minor tinkering to small little, you know, rules that are intended to cut down on the catastrophic hits, the catastrophic injuries, because those are what alarm fans. What should be alarming fans are those thousands and thousands of sub-concussive hits that lead to players like Brett Favre or Steve Young or Tony Dorsett or and the list goes on, you know, later in life, having CTE or some kind of brain illness. You know, on the one hand, uh, we as a society, I think, have progressed, you know, uh, women's rights. You know, they're more active in the workplace than ever before. They're being educated at a higher rate than ever before. We are in some ways progressive. And yet along with that, football has never been popular. I mean, is it safe to say that football is kind of a refuge for people who begrudge that sort of progression or who don't um, enjoy or participate in, in what is ultimately, you know, trying to be a progressive society? Well, I don't think, I mean, look, here's the deal. You know, I think of football, and I say this at the end of the book, and you guys are welcome if, if your listeners are, are interested in such a thing to like it or you have a website to, to post this portion of the book. I think of football ultimately as a kind of refuge. And at any rate, that's what it's been for me. It's been a place where I can retreat from the very complicated, scary exhausting realities of trying to be like a, an adult, a parent, a good citizen. And I can just take pleasure in the joys of the body at play and um, a certain kind of, uh, a certain kind of aggression and, and heroic aggression that 
Like I can't enact in the world as an adult or a parent, but I still have deep inside me as a little kid who loves playing football and loves sports in general. And, you know, it's a sort of a morality-free zone. It's a place where people can go where they know what the rules are and they, it, 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 it's sort of before the age of shame, before you feel bad about things. This is why it was so spectacularly stupid to write a book like Against Football because who wants to be, you know, the whole point of football is not to feel bad and guilty and it's to take pleasure in something that is kind of tribal and exciting and dangerous. And I think like a lot of the things that we, you know, take pleasure in, it's it's not exactly that, that we're um, holding society back from moral progress. It's that inside of each of us, we're seeking a refuge from really complicated, um, you know, morally difficult crises. This happens every time you fill up your car with a tank of gas, you know, or that you eat meat and know that it was factory farmed and the animal suffered and it's part of a larger, you know, if you're really paying attention, Americans all the time are faced with these little moments where they can either feel pleasure or they can feel guilt or they can feel some complicated mix of the two. And I think football is kind of a place where where I, anyway, for years, really, re- it's a refuge, a place that I can go to where I don't have to worry about all this stuff and I can just enjoy the game. And frankly, since I stopped watching, I miss it terribly. And, you know, I no longer can go out with my neighbor, Sean, who I write about in the book, and watch games. And you know, take take that kind of pleasure and just unwind from all my responsibilities as a dad with three little kids and a complicated marriage and, you know, my anxieties about what's going to happen politically in this country and climate change, you know, all that scary stuff that's just looming out there. Football, like thinking about an amazing player making an amazing play or your team doing well, it's, you know, it gives people a great deal of comfort and relief and it allows them to connect to their families and to their hometowns and to stuff that's really important to them. I don't want my book to be like an argument against football or, you know, saying that it's dumb. It's a reluctant manifesto. It's about having to, or trying to convince myself to turn away from something I really love. And I don't think it, it makes sense to say to, to try to shame people about football. And that's not what my book is trying to do. It's trying to understand everything that football is. And yeah, in some ways, the, probably the ways in which it keeps us from making certain kinds of moral progress that are really inconvenient. I mean, trying to understand everything that football is, one of the more fascinating pieces of the book, I thought, was your analysis of uh, Richie Incognito and Jonathan Martin. And uh, to quote you again, you you say Incognito is guilty of bullying, but his true crime seems to be that he harbors forbidden desires for Jonathan Martin, which is... um, Maybe a bit salacious, a bit incendiary, but you make a really good case for it. And, uh, you know, you also write that pro athletes have engineered lives in which they work and eat and bathe with other men and live by a set of masculine codes that discourage empathy, introspection, any sign of weakness, really. And as history attests, there are clear social and political ramifications to this internal schism. I'm curious. I mean, we're seeing kind of the rise of Donald Trump, right? There's a, there's a political, you kind of reference some of the political things that are going on in this country. And uh, there seems to like a large overlap in the demographics there and a large overlap in the sentiments, you know, of people wanting to fight, people wanting to knock people in the mouth and so forth. I mean, what, is it fair to say that Trump's success is just one more facet of the kind of culture that supports and embraces the NFL? It's fascinating because after the playoff game that you mentioned, actually, the, the Bengals, Steelers game, which was a particularly violent 
intense game where the fans I didn't see it but I you know I wrote it I I heard Trump talking about the NFL and he his reaction to that game was in, in, in essence the exact opposite of yours you saw the big hits and the violence and how overt it was and how kind of this this atmosphere of, of aggression and violence in the stadium and it made you sort of lean back from the screen and go Ugh, I don't know if I want to be a part of this scene even though I love the game, right? I hope I'm not mischaracterizing how you felt, but it sounds like what you were sort of saying. Donald Trump's response to watching that same game was, I can't even watch the NFL anymore. It's a bunch of sissies. They throw a flag every, you know, every five minutes. And his fans, of course, ate it up. There is something about his rise that feels to me very clearly, and I wrote a whole piece about this because it was such a striking moment where football and NFL culture were kind of clearly overlapping with the rise of Trump. It is about wounded masculinity. It is about being the tough guy and the strong man and, you know, and, and answering um, people who you disagree with or troubled by or threaten your worldview with aggression, punching them or wanting to punch them or shout them down. And that's where we are politically. This is the moment that we live in where there is a large number of people who are, um, I think, quite frightened and angry. They see the civic institutions, the media, and the political systems in our country essentially broken. They, they recognize that corporate influence, or at least they recognize that those systems are broken. Whether they realize how much corporate influence is a part of that is, is more debatable. But they're understandably frustrated and angry. A lot of them are Caucasian white people like me who feel... Um, culturally dislocated and under siege in some way, as if the rising minority populations in this country are going to take away certain things that they've had for a long time. And, you know, they feel understandably under siege. And the way that they deal with that, I think, is through feeling a lot of aggression and anger and plugging into a guy like Trump, who basically his whole ethos is, you know, right makes... <laughs> might makes right you know i'm a big strong guy and i'm going to take care of you don't worry i got a big dick. i'm a big tough guy i'm gonna you know <laughs> we're gonna shout down and it's really ultimately kind of it's it, it, it that kind of fronting that kind of machismo is always built on a foundation of insecurity whether it's donald trump or, or, or richie incognito anytime you go out of your way to try to seem like a tough guy it's because Deep down inside, you don't feel so tough at all. And I think somebody like Richie Incognito, to circle around to where your question started, um, as you guys have noticed, rhetorically, I tend to take the scenic route. But, you know, <laughs> his relationship with Jonathan Martin, these guys exchanged, what, you know, 30,000 texts. Over the course of 14 months, that's like 30 texts a day at all hours of the day and night, often about the intimate details of their sexual life. The way that that Incognito talks about Jonathan Martin calling him his bitch and, and all this ideation around you're gay, you're a f***it, uh, you know, and also I miss you, uh, you know. And there's a kind of <laughs> underneath all the bluster is this feeling that really – in a way, he kind of loved, he loved Jonathan Martin, maybe not like wanted to have sex with Jonathan Martin, but that he felt an intimacy towards him and a closeness that was frightening to him, 
for him to confront. And he dealt with that, I think, by bullying him, which is oftentimes what we do. You know, the, the, the kid whose pigtails you pulled in third grade was one you had a crush on. I think this is an operation in general in sports and especially in football culture where, in a way, for me, I purchased by being a football fan the right to go spend time with my male friends. And I sort of need that camouflage, that hetero camouflage, to kind of make sure that I'm not under suspicion for being a or being somebody who's, you know, insufficiently sort of masculine. I think that's true in the larger world of football. It's this kind of cult of hyper-masculinity. And there's, you know, there, when, when, for instance, Jonathan Vilma said, I don't want to have a gay guy in the locker room, what he was really saying is, hey, the locker room's an incredibly intimate space. I have to undress there. I have to, you know, I'm around guys all the time and I'm around them naked and in the showers and so forth. And I don't want a guy who I think might be checking me out in that space. People can tease him for being bigoted about that or paranoid or whatever. But if I put myself in his shoes, I get what he's saying. What he's really pointing out is that football and the culture of football, if you're inside of it, is is an all-male enclave, and it's tremendously intimate at the same time that it's super macho. You know, these guys are closer to one another than they are. It seems to me that Jonathan um, Richie Incognito and Jonathan Martin were probably psychologically and emotionally closer to each other than any of the women who, you know, they might have, you know, been involved with. And that's frightening when you have a, an image of yourself and the world has an image of you as this super macho guy who would never catch a dick in a million years. You had just mentioned, you know, the macho atmosphere kind of surrounding football. And one of the guys that I think of is kind of a local product here in Houston. Ted Johnson grew up, has family in the state of Texas and, you know, won three Super Bowl rings with the Patriots. Now we host a, a afternoon drive radio show on 610 here in Houston called the Triple Threat. But he's more of that macho figure and they kind of play him up as that macho figure. And for our listeners, I'm not sure how many people know this story about the practice jersey and the hospital trip, but can you kind of recap that for the audience? This is it's such a great example of the kind of paradox that a lot of these guys are stuck in. So here's Ted Johnson, who is you know steeped in, in, in I'm not going to say indoctrinated, but steeped in football culture. And the, the best thing that you can do when you're a football player, the most noble and heroic thing is not to play well, it's to play hurt, right? That's the big measure is that you're, you're, you're willing to put your body at risk for, for your brothers and for your team, right? Um, so Ted Johnson is you know, pretty steeped in that. And yet later in his career with the Patriots, he keeps getting these concussions, these brain, suffering these brain traumas. And it's clear to him, also because he was a middle linebacker, and these guys like Chris Borland, the guy who quit, was essentially saying, I have to because the sort of the, the sell-by date on middle linebackers, given the violence of their position and how much serious contact they're going to have to have and how much head trauma they're going to have to suffer, you know, it's, those guys get used up pretty quick. Um, and to put it very cynically, because their bodies and their brains just get hit so hard, so much, so frequently. So Ted Johnson is sort of at the end of his career, toward the end of his career, he suffers what he clearly knows is a neurological event, and he wants to not have to play. And he knows that there is, he knows that he's not right. And so he really wants to make sure that he's not going to be in practice. Uh, you know, he's going to wear a no contact jersey. Now, Bill Belichick 
the coach of the Patriots knows something very fundamental that every football coach knows. You cannot have a player who's playing scared, especially at middle linebacker. You cannot have somebody who's consciously or unconsciously avoiding contact. Those guys have to be completely unambivalent about throwing their their bodies uh, before their conscience. They just have to play that way. Um, you hear that term. They're flying around the field. It's basically you have to have wild abandon. You can't have in the back of your mind the tiniest voice saying, hey, you could suffer a second impact syndrome and, and your brain could hemorrhage and you could die or you're not fully recovered from the last injury or you're still dizzy or don't do this. You can't have any of those voices. You have to be ready to play all out no matter what the risk to your body is. So Ted Johnson wanted to, he knew, had the good common sense as a human being to recognize I'm not in good shape, a good enough shape. I need more recovery time. He wanted to have a no-contact jersey. Um, he had one in his uh, locker, and it's replaced by, uh, at, at Belichick's direction, it's replaced by a contact jersey. And he goes ahead, even though he's steaming mad about it, he goes ahead and he wears that contact jersey because he knows that he wants to please his coach he knows that his coach is essentially saying to him, hey, man up, pal. And I think a couple of days later, if I'm getting the story right, he suffers a serious concussion in a preseason game, uh, another concussion, and essentially um, shortly after that ends up retiring. And he's furious at Belichick, and he goes into Belichick's office and confronts him about the fact that he forced Johnson really back onto the field when it was medically unsafe. And, you know, that story doesn't get told a lot. And, and Belichick essentially admits it and says, yes, I did that. I was the one who wanted you to wear the contact jersey. Um, it has to do with the larger issue of incentives. You really have to think about it. And at the end of Against Football, I talk about, okay, so how might the game be changed? And the only way that it's really going to get changed is if the current incentives are changed. The incentives at the at the moment are, win and make money. Those are the only two incentives for the players, the coaches, certainly the owners and the sponsors. The only way that's going to change is if you put in place a different set of incentives. So for instance, in the case of guys like Ted Johnson or just generally, it would not be difficult at all with the current technology to put monitors in the players' helmets and to put them on a essentially what amounts to a kind of pitch count for football so that if they absorb Based on these monitors, a certain number of G-force hits, um, they have to be removed from the game. They would have to be because it would be medically unsafe for them to, you know, to sustain the kind of sub-concussive events that they got in a game or a practice. But, of course, the NFL will never do that in a million years. And the reason they won't is because, one, it forces the fans to think about the fact that these guys are all risking brain injury, and, two, because the players themselves have to play with that kind of reckless abandon. That's part of the reason that we're tuning in, right, guys? Because we see those guys being way braver than we would be. Most normal, rational human beings, if Ted Johnson was bearing down on you or Teddy Bruschi or, you know, whoever it is, Brian Urlacher, a 270-pound dude with, you know, 15% body fat and, you know, if not roided up, buffed beyond belief, weaponized in a, hel in a hard helmet and shoulder pads was bearing down at you, you know, at 24 miles per hour, ready to pound your sternum into dust. The logical response for any, any of us fans would be to turn around and run as fast as we could, <laughs> you know, duck into a foxhole. 
these guys are heroic to us because they live out a certain kind of it's really a Greek ethos. It's the it's the idea that is put forward in the Iliad. You know, Achilles has a choice of a long, safe life or a short, valorous life in which he knows he's going to die young. In a sense, we admire Achilles for going out on the shield and making that decision, even though it's against his self-interest, his you know hope of having a long-term life. That's what almost every NFL player lives every Sunday, and we. Um, from the safety of our couches, having made decisions to lead another sort of safer life, love them for it. We worship them for it. We admire what their their courage and their valor, even if it destroys their bodies and their brains, especially because it destroys their body and their brains. Um, you know, we know that they have a certain kind of courage that we don't. And Ted Johnson's one of these cases where he had the good sense to break that code and say, I know that I am not, it, it is unsafe for me to go back on the field. And the incentives of the game said to him, hey, pal, put on the blue jersey or you're not going to play on Sunday. And more importantly, I, the coach, and the rest of your team is going to think you're weak. This is where it really circles back to that idea of hypermasculinity. And a lot of these guys, it's a kind of collective group think. You only see it when somebody like Chris Borland says, what are you talking, oh, my God, I, I don't care if I'm going to get a big contract. Mm -hmm. I'm going to die young and in a painful, chaotic way for myself and my family, or there's a significant risk that that's going to happen if I continue to play this game. You know, and everybody says, oh, what a wise decision this guy's making. But we don't say, what an unwise decision every other player who makes a different <laughs> decision is making. So I really think... It has to do with changing incentives. You know, another thing that I suggest at the end of against football is you could put a weight limit so that guys aren't bulking up because part of what I'm sure you've seen down in Texas, players at the high school level, Pop Warner level, and the college and pro level have just gotten about 30% bigger, stronger, and faster over the past 20 years. It's a kind of human arms race. And... That means it's just more dangerous. Guys, if you read about any, there's a wonderful book called Slow Getting Up by the NFL tight end, retired tight end, Nate Jackson. And the whole book is about what it's really like to be a player, how injured they are all the time, and also how hard it is to literally just keep his weight up. It's a guy who should naturally be walking around at 220 pounds or 210 pounds, and he's walking around at 250, 270 pounds, having to stuff himself full of calories and protein shakes and the rest of it because that's the only way that he's going to crack the, you know, the roster. And this is happening at every level. We have players who are playing at these unnatural weights, and it makes it more dangerous for their bodies and more dangerous for the bodies they're running into. So none of this stuff is, is uh, you know, rocket science. It's all pretty basic, but it runs up against our desire as fans ultimately to kind of see the human limits of endurance and courage pushed further and further. I'll be honest, it seems almost hopeless. I mean, if it's so deeply ingrained in us, you know, to, to, to love and be attracted to these kind of heroic figures, this sort of blood sport, that bravery, that courage, I mean, how do we, you know, weight limits might fix a little bit from the football end. How do we as people fix ourselves? I mean, it sounds like we're broken. Well, I'll tell you what, I think, you know, that is the exact question at the center of against football that I'm like kind of not wanting to face and, and, and struggling with. And you really kind of remarkably put your finger right on it. 
you know, football is only what we've made it. it. The fact that it's our religion, that it's our God, that it's our church, says very um, beautiful and amazing things about the human desire for grace and heroism and a certain kind of masculinity. And, you know, those things are real and true. But it also says a whole other set of things about our inability to kind of grow up and have a more compassionate view of the world and a more empathic view of the world. And the only thing I can say is moral progress is extraordinarily inconvenient, but it's also possible. You know, the, the, the United States has one narrative in which we're becoming more and more brutal and unhappy and self-destructive and decadent and indulgent. It's a kind of Roman Empire version where football stands in for the gladiatorial spectacles that marked really that were symptomatic of the downfall of that empire. But there's another history to the United States that has to do with slow, individual moments of moral awakening in which people made inconvenient decisions that were also the right decisions. For instance, to cleanse ourselves of the sin of slavery or to allow women to vote or to go through the, um, the tumult of the civil rights movement or to believe in the principles of the New Deal or the Great Society, which weren't, you know, government should take over everything, but that, that the job of government is to help and comfort the afflicted and the disenfranchised. All of those things are also a part of the American story. And, you know, football in a way is just a kind of, it's sort of America on steroids. You know, it's sort of a symbol of our battle to um, kind of, you know, connect to our primal cells and and to childhood and the pleasures of childhood, and also, in, in in my view, to kind of reckon with the places in which we've wandered away from the better angels of our nature as a country. And that wandering is individual. It takes place inside individuals. You know, against football doesn't say boycott football. It doesn't say it doesn't say anything, other than you know, let's start a conversation about what football means and what it does for us and its beauty and its grace and how important it is for us as a means of connecting to people in our family and our community and our city or whatever it is, or high school or college, but also what it says about, um, you know, the other set of values that are reinforced when it comes to football. And you know, that's a, that's a kind of private moral struggle that happens within individuals. And the aggregate of those individual moral struggles, I believe, hope, knock on wood, I have three little kids, so I have to hope this, is that the country makes, goes in a different direction um, and, and makes some moral progress. And not that people necessarily quit watching football altogether, but that they maybe move away from football towards another sport, or demand in a, in a way that's you know registers uh, that the sport be made less less violent and dangerous to the people who play it. Or for instance, if we really care about education, that we have football as something that's an activity people pursue outside of educational institutions. Since it makes no sense to me that we have football as such a huge part of our um, high school and college identity, really. When you say University of Michigan or, you know, Corpus Christi High School or whatever it is, you should be thinking about classrooms and students and people's minds becoming and brains becoming more powerful and more supple. You shouldn't be thinking about a football team, right? So 
I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what direction it will go, but I do think we've reached a moment where, um, and it's pretty long overdue, where people inside and outside the sport are starting to beginning to see it as a moral undertaking as well as just a, a an amazing form of entertainment. And you know, anybody who tries to predict what's going to happen with it is 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 on a fool's errand. Steve, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I know that both myself and Kevin have enjoyed it, and we appreciate you taking the time to join us this week. And uh, for those that are interested in following your work or perhaps purchasing Against Football or any of the other books that you've written, where can they find them? And also, how can they connect with you on social media? The book is available, like Against Football, it's available on Amazon, or, you know, that's just a Google search away. If people want to... um, send me hate mail or any kind of mail, they're welcome to do that. I'm on, I'm easy to find. You just Google my name and that gets you to the website. And actually if people want to read like the first, the introduction to the book, which I think tries to set out what I'm up to, it has this title against football that makes it sound very dogmatic, but I hope Kevin, you would agree. It's not, I'm a fan. I love the game. I'm not just trying to tear it down or say it's dumb. I'm really trying to figure it out um, from the inside. And so the first, uh, the, the introduction to the book is, is at againstfootball.org, which is my, um, you know, my website. And, you know, I'm also on Twitter, I guess, if people wanted to tweet things at me, I'm at, uh, you know, at Steve Allman Joy. Um, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. But more important, you know, for your listeners um, is, you know, just to, I think, kind of honor what their relationship is to football and the complexity of it. Because one thing I can't stand, and I'm sure you guys feel the same way, is when somebody criticizes football as dumb or brutal or unsophisticated, you know, it's like they don't really get how amazing the game is, how strategically dense it is, how satisfying it is as a narrative. All the amazing... um, little aspects that a real fan is thinking about strategically and so forth. And that's actually a lot of, you know, people who are into fantasy football are really kind of studying a very complex game and trying to figure it out. And regardless of the morality of that, it's a, that's why so many people are fascinated by football. Um, but also there are these other things to think about. It's like when we go into football land, we don't want, we don't want the synapses to connect to you know the rest of our lives, but they should be connected. You know, if you're a parent, you should think about what your allegiance to football is, wh- what kind of values that is conveying to your kids. You, know, you should just think about that, and it didn't, doesn't mean you should think that you're terrible for watching or that they should never play it or watch it. Maybe you decide that they should, but it should be a considered decision. You should really, honestly look at football for everything that it is the allure of it, but also the, you know, the ethical questions around it. So anyway, that's the main thing, you know, buying a book, nobody wants to buy a book. I don't blame them for not wanting to buy it, but (laughs) but having that larger, having that larger discussion is the thing that I'm interested in. Well, I would certainly recommend that they do buy the book. I think it's one of the most thoughtful, uh, measured and entertaining uh, looks at the game of football and at our culture as it relates to football that, that I've ever encountered. So again, Steve, I appreciate it so much. I, uh, I I disagree. I think everyone should go buy the book and they should love the process of going to buy that book. You can find uh, againstfootball.org if I'm right. And at uh, Steve Allman Joy is his uh, tag on Twitter. So go look for him and, and uh, enjoy the work as much as I did, I hope. Thanks again. Steve. All right, take care. Closing time. 
another great episode of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Again, this has been episode 35, and uh, you know we ha- we just had a great interview with Steve Almond, who wrote the book Against Football. And uh, you know, I thought it was a really fascinating interview. I think when we originally uh, lined up the interview with Steve, we thought it would maybe be a 15 to 20 minute segment, and obviously it was a little bit more than that. But I thought the content and the discussion that we had with him was uh, quite remarkable. And you know, some of the stories that he was telling, uh, specifically with Ted Johnson, who you know kind of had that machismo uh, mindset and is kind of looked at it that, that macho man, you know, finally coming to the realization that you know he's going to have long-term effects. I thought that was pretty enlightening. And to see Bill Belichick, you know, essentially take away that non-contact jersey, I mean, to me, that was uh, kind of crazy. And, you know, also something else that we've dived into several times was that it's not the concussions necessarily. It's those sub-concussive hits. And as Steve said, it's those mini car accidents that happen on the practice field. I mean, to me, that was so enlightening. And uh, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Jeremy, I know you couldn't join us, but Kevin, uh, you were there for the interview. Uh, what did you think of the conversation? Well, Steve Allman's a guy, uh, my ex-girlfriend and mother both love Candy Freak. Uh, he's a terrific writer. I, I mentioned, I think we were talking before we recorded, he wrote a really excellent piece for, I believe it was Salon, about how Samantha B should be the one hosting The Daily Show and not Trevor Noah. And I wholeheartedly agree. I hadn't even thought of it that way before I read that piece. So he is a guy that if you can get your hands on against football, if you can get your hands on... Uh, on Candy Freak. I mean, really anything that he's written is fascinating, entertaining. It's relatable. It's not overly intellectual or, or hard to approach. I mean, he's just a terrific writer and, and pleasantly uh, terrific to talk to as well. I was very fascinated by every minute of that interview, which it was quite lengthy. But I mean, who could even turn away at that point with the things he was talking about? So Ted Johnson breaking ranks with the Patriot, you know, kind of denying that, uh, that Patriot way. And he talks about that on the radio as well. So, I mean, uh, that book is phenomenal. It's quite brief. You can read it on an airplane flight, I think, if you put your mind to it. Um, and I know people don't buy books anymore, but but do it. Buy this book, Against Football. Uh, the guy deserves uh, everything he can get for that book, and you deserve to read it um, because you're good and you deserve good things like that book. So I would recommend highly to all of our listeners that they go out and obtain Against Football and, and really ponder you know, what is it we love so much about football? Because I've been thinking a lot about it as a high school sports reporter, primarily high school. I do a little bit of college as well, but as a primarily high school sports reporter, I watch a lot of high school football. I've watched a lot of kids get carted off the field. I've watched a lot of kids get up and sort of be wobbly in a way that if I were their parent would absolutely terrify me. And it gets harder every time I do it. And so I think the question that um, is never explicitly posed in the book, but it's, okay, now you've heard all this. Now we know all this stuff about CTE. We know it's not just concussions. We know there's really nothing the league can do short of making this a touch football league or a flag football league to totally mitigate um, you know, the effects of these subconcussive hits that ultimately cause CTE, suicide, depression, Alzheimer's, those kinds of things. Uh, so the question is, are you going to watch football? And, you know, I... I'm a sports reporter. I, football is what keeps the lights on around the office I work in. You know, we, we cover sports year round, but football is a big business in Texas. And, you know, he even mentioned Texas specifically. That's where the kids are biggest. You know, it's one of the uh, powerhouses in the nation. And so I, I'm sort of, I feel like morally, I feel like I'm forced to sit there because it's my job or whatever, but I could walk away from my job, I suppose. And I'm not going to do that. So ultimately, I feel like I listened to all this stuff. I read his book. I have all these moral qualms. I'm educated. I watched League of Denial. You know, I, I, I really support this movement. And yet at the end of the day, can I tear myself away from football? No, I really can't. I mean, what about you guys? You know, Kevin, it's really interesting to hear you talk about all this because this is something that's really near to my heart. And I'm going to resent you forever because uh, I'm really jealous that you got to sit and talk to him. 
uh, for as long as you did. Um, I've heard about this book. I have not read it. I now intend to read it. Um, and I, for, as, for that matter, I think all of our listeners should probably take a peek at it. Um, you, you know, it, it is something that I've thought about a lot uh, here the past year or two, um, especially in my field working with brain injury patients and, and in fact, some ex-football players. Um, you know, I, when, I, when I go to football games now, and I see those hits. I see those those big hits, and when the guys get carted off the field, you know, kind of shaking their head or kind of uh, walking all wobbly, I, I cringe. Um, and it's something that I've had to ask myself: like, would I let my kids do that one day? Um, I I played my I myself played football real briefly. Um, I did. I was so terrible that I never got played, and I'm kind of thankful for that in retrospect. But um, I, I'm definitely, you know, this is all kind of giving me a moment for pause. And um, I, I really uh, I, I hope that uh, you, our listeners. Uh, would also maybe uh, do the same um, and just, you know, pause for a moment and think about, you know, should I be watching football? I mean, to be completely honest with you, um, I, I probably will. I do love the sport. I do love watching it. Um, but I have some serious questions about its viability in our society going forward. I think for me, the short answer is no, I'm not going to stop watching football, especially college football. I mean, I own four season tickets to Baylor football, and I have no intention of giving those up. Um, you know, I just love the atmosphere, the you know, the pageantry that you have at college football games. But I can tell you, and as I mentioned in the interview with Steve, when I was watching that Bengals-Pittsburgh game in the playoffs, I mean, I was ill after seeing Antonio Brown get hit and and to me I just I don't know it was it was you know they were celebrating the hit and it, it you know it made me sick you know especially after seeing League of Denial which is a phenomenal documentary that you can find on Netflix right now and if you haven't watched it I highly recommend it but another thing that I go back to is in 2011 Baylor football was playing Texas Tech at AT&T Stadium up in Arlington and uh, this was uh, the year that Robert Griffin III won the Heisman Trophy and it was late in the first half and I was actually working the game on the sideline you know I I had already graduated but I was there um, helping my alma mater out and I was you know escorting the sideline reporter out uh, essentially being the on-field liaison between her the coaching staff and uh, you know the, the the medical staff and Robert Griffin took a cheap shot late in the first half along the sideline and uh, his head hit the ground and you know he came up off of the field and he walked probably about five yards in front of me with his helmet off and his eyes were completely glazed and my first thought was you know not whether or not he was going to be okay my first thought was oh my gosh our star quarterback is out our Heisman Trophy front runner is out of the game are we going to be able to win this and you know now that I look back on it you know after being you know five years wiser my first my first thought should have been oh my gosh like is he going to be okay not are we going to win this game um, so I, I would say that being more knowledgeable about the subject and being uh, you know and having conversations like we did with Steve I think it gives me a different perspective now and so I'm not uh, you know not necessarily looking at the implications of the game, but now looking at the implications of what this means for that guy's life moving forward. So I think I'm still going to watch football, but I'm going to look at it from a different angle. You know, it's interesting though, because he talks in the book about Bill Simmons, as you guys all know, uh, a personal hero of mine. Um, and he sort of, I won't say it excoriates him, but he does kind of take him to task uh, for an article he wrote in which he said, you know, about, um, this is about the bounty scandal. Um, and he said, you know, where where is the line that we draw? And that was all he said, just where is the line? He said, that's kind of a wishy-washy, weak response, Bill. Um, and I think that what 
Steve might say if we asked him this question, if he were still here, is talking about it enough, is being educated enough? Not really, because he said the difference only comes when people vote with their pocketbooks, when people ultimately take money out of the hands of the NFL for what they're doing to people. And like you said, you're not giving up your Baylor season tickets. Um, you know, people are not going to, whether they have moral qualms or not, they're not going to turn off the television. They're not going to get away from the games. And so ultimately, no matter how much hand wringing is done, does anything ultimately change? No, except maybe we feel a little more enlightened, a little more progressive, and we ultimately um, kind of assuage these problems by saying, okay, we have issues with them, we're discussing them. And I think that we're maybe we're failing. Maybe we're failing these athletes. Maybe we're failing you know, our country and the world by continuing to support this, even though we have these obvious moral qualms. And I don't know. There's no easy way out of it. I feel like it's such a conundrum for me, and I feel like I'm not making the right decision. It was definitely a fascinating conversation with Steve. And if, if you have the chance, go out and purchase that book. We definitely recommend you uh, read that. And if you have any input on, you know, kind of the morality or would you give up football, we want to hear it from you. And again, you can always find our content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Weekly Brewcast. Tell us what you think. Tell us if you are going to give up football. If you're going to think twice about watching a football game, we want to hear from you. In addition to social media, you can also leave comments and feedback on our iTunes page. Just search The Weekly Brew on iTunes. Uh, we prefer that you leave us a five-star review. Tell us you know, what you thought about Steve's interview. Tell us uh, you know, if you have any show ideas or if there are any guests that you would like us to bring on the show. We definitely want to hear your feedback. And uh, this past week, we actually did have an iTunes review. So Kevin, it was a better week for you, wasn't it? It certainly was. Uh, and I will say that we are, I think, highly receptive to feedback of most kinds. Generally, if people are very pro-Trump, their Facebook profile picture is Trump or whatever, we're probably not going to listen to anything they say. But but for the most part, people text in, people email in. You can email us at uh, theweeklybrewcast at gmail.com. Um, lots of ways to reach us, and we love listening to the listeners and, and hearing feedback. But if there is one sure way to get your feedback noticed and uh, sort of taken into consideration, it is by leaving it on the iTunes page where it does us the most good. It kind of helps us show up in people's searches. Uh, it makes us look more popular when we have all these five-star reviews. Uh, we certainly appreciate that. And we know that there are literally thousands of you that are listening and have not left reviews. So we would certainly appreciate that if you went and did it. And um, there is a new review this week, which means for me, it's a good week. I feel good about myself. Uh, my self-worth is entirely tied up in this. And so for the next seven days, I walk around feeling like I'm a success. I've done well with my life. Um, and that's really what it's all about for me. So this week, thank you to, and this one actually is a name that I can read. Lots of times their um, handles or whatever, mine is K-Dog Infinity, whatever that means. I think I did it when I was like 13. This person, Bailey Eubanks, I'm guessing is this person's real name. So uh, Bailey Eubanks said, entertained throughout with an exclamation mark. We do strive to entertain. When the Weekly Brew comes on next to my SoundCloud feed, I get enveloped in the show's content and am consistently entertained. This is not to mention a great source for your fun weekly need-to-knows. So uh, interesting there, uh, Bailey, I'm not sure if it's a man or woman, but Bailey uh, left us a note that said that she originally or he originally found us on SoundCloud cloud, uh, which is cool because one of the things we wonder about is how did you stumble across our show? Did someone tell you about us? Um, because we encourage all of you to tell your friends about it. People are looking for good podcasts. But an excellent review, Bailey Eubanks. Thank you so much for that. That helps us. Uh, this week, you're my favorite listener. And really, if I'm being honest, favorite person that I know. Strong words for Bailey Eubanks. And uh, uh, Bailey, we appreciate the iTunes review. And uh, again, we encourage all of our listeners to go and do the same thing. But guys, I've really enjoyed the conversation that we've had. Uh, it's been fascinating, you know, from discussing, uh, you know, concussions and uh, against football with Steve Allman to also discussing hypothetical scenarios with both basketball, baseball and football and which player you would take if we're building a franchise or which player had the best career. 
I just really enjoyed the discussion that we had uh, this week, and we hope all of our listeners did as well. For my co-hosts this week, Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton, I'm Austin Statton, and I'll see you next week. And brew responsibly. You know, I survived the sports segment. I'm pretty proud of that. I, I think I'm making progress. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 